Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Dark Crossroads. Today we're doing another Creepy Corner episode, but I'm kind of doing it a little bit different. Um, when I plan to do my episodes, I do it based off of what I'm really interested in that week, something that I really want to dive into and talk with you guys about. So recently I've been really into exorcisms and researching them, and I think it's because it's starting to get into spooky season. For me personally, after July 4th, it's Halloween from then until Thanksgiving. But um, anyway, I've been watching the, the scary movies, decorating, and whatnot. So I don't have any um, stories that have been written to me about exorcism. So what I'm going to do is kind of go on like a Reddit forum and read a bunch of short stories about real life exorcisms and the outcomes of them. And then on future episodes, I'm going to deep dive into these stories. So with that said, let's just jump right in. The ritualistic act of real exorcism is referenced in cultures worldwide and its practice shrouded in controversy. The purpose of an exorcism is to expel evil forces that have hijacked the body of a living person, and even the Vatican recognizes it as a valid practice. In 2018, the Vatican taught a course on exorcisms, training 250 priests on how to properly perform this ritual. The need for such a course stemmed from an uptick in reported demonic possessions. According to Catholic law, only an ordained priest can perform a real exorcism and they must be trained beforehand. However, there have been several reported cases where things went wrong during a ritual, and the person who claimed to be possessed either died or suffered severe mental and emotional injury. While each of these real-life exorcisms is confirmed or corroborated, psychiatrists and even the Catholic Church itself have debated their necessity. Indeed, most of the symptoms associated with these demonic possessions can be explained by modern psychology as signs of recognized mental illness like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. Some incidents, however, might make you reconsider. Alrighty guys, so our first story is going to be that of The Exorcism of Roland Doe. The classic film The Exorcist is based on a real-life exorcism of a 13-year-old boy in Cottage City, Maryland in 1949. No one knows this boy's true identity, as his name was changed to protect his identity and privacy, so he is referred to as Roland Doe. Roland Doe's possession began following the death of his aunt. He turned to a Ouija board to communicate with her, something that they often would do together, so he knew if he used the Ouija board, he could reach her. But he apparently invited something much more sinister into his life. Shortly after using the Ouija board, he began hearing scratching noises inside his bedroom walls, and his mattress started moving erratically on its own. As the possession worsened, Roland began demonstrating very violent superhuman strength. Roland's parents sought help from Father E. Albert Hughes, who requested permission from the church to conduct an exorcism. The ritual became very violent, and Roland eventually tore a spring off of his mattress, and he used it to slash Father Hughes across his shoulders. The family then headed to St. Louis and saw three more priests who, with permission, carried out around 30 exorcisms on Roland. 
The priest reported that his outbursts only occurred at night, and he had messages written on his skin, guttural voices, and experienced extreme strength. He would also become extremely enraged at the sight of anything religious and would make it fly across the room. The exorcisms became worse and worse, with Roland wetting his bed and violently cursing at the priest. But one final exorcism worked a miracle. The ritual took seven minutes, and the priest observed Roland coming out of his trance-like state and simply stated, he's gone. Afterwards, Roland Doe experienced a vision of St. Michael defeating the devil, and he never suffered from any possession ever again. Our next story is The Real Exorcism of Emily Rose, who was Annalise Michael. I personally find this one extremely disturbing, so I just want to kind of put a little warning out. Even though these are short stories, it is very disturbing. The Exorcism of Annalise Michael is so frightening that it inspired the 2005 film The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Annalise was a young German woman born in 1952. At 16 years old, she blacked out during school and began to behave out of character. Within a year of her blackout, she started wetting her bed and having seizure-like convulsions. Doctors diagnosed her with epileptic psychosis as well as visual and auditory hallucinations, for which she was eventually hospitalized. Over time, her symptoms intensified and included an aversion toward religious items. Both Annalise and her Catholic family attributed her condition to demonic possession. She began claiming that she could see the devil's face and hear voices mocking her damned spirit. Her family went to church for help, but most of the priests they spoke with urged Annalise to see a doctor, explaining that a real-life exorcism required the authorization of a bishop. Then it got even worse. She began eating spiders, coal, and even the head of a dead bird. She would also drink her own urine, bark like a rabid dog, and perform hundreds of squats a day. Finally, priests Ernest received approval from a bishop to perform the exorcism. He spent 10 months with one other priest named Arnold performing 67 exorcisms on Annalise. During these exorcisms, Annalise claimed to be possessed by Adolf Hitler, Nero, Lucifer, Cain, Judas, and a disgraced priest named I'm going to say this wrong, Flishman. Her condition worsened and she broke bones in her knees from repeatedly kneeling for prayer and doing the millions of squats that she was doing a day. Annalise soon stopped eating food altogether and died of malnutrition and dehydration at the very young age of 23 in 1976. The priests and the family were investigated and charged with negligent homicide and found guilty of manslaughter. Our next story is the Methodist exorcism of George Lukens. In 1769, in Bristol, England, George Lukens began behaving erratically. He was speaking in strange voices, making inhuman noises, and singing hymns backwards. Lukens was also a ventriloquist, a singer, and actor in the Christmas Mummeries. That Christmas, Lukens was in the middle of a run of performances 
when he felt what he reported as a divine slap bring him to the ground. When he awoke, he began suffering from seizures where he couldn't speak and his right hand twitched as he barked like a dog. His parish admitted him to a clinic where his condition worsened over 20 weeks. Convinced he was bewitched, he sought out magic practitioners and attacked an older woman to try to drink her blood. Lukens claimed the devil had possessed him. Reverend Joseph Easterbrook visited Lukens and determined that an exorcism was necessary. However, his petition to the church was rejected. Of course, he went ahead with exorcism in secret anyway with the help of six other Methodist priests and six Wesleyan ministers. The priests and ministers reported that Lukens responded to the exorcism with violent curses in a deep, hoarse, hollow tone and sang and laughed and claimed to be the devil. He also exhibited so much strength that it was difficult to restrain him. Lukens also mocked the men by singing the Te Doom hymn, but replacing God with the word devil. After two hours of the exorcism, Lukens recited the Lord's Prayer, thanked the exorcist, and never fell ill again. Her next story is The Exorcism of Clara Gemana Sele. Clara Sele was a 16-year-old from South Africa. In 1906, nuns at the orphanage school that she was at claimed that her behavior began to turn violent and that she was ripping at her clothes and growling, demanding to speak with her father. She told him that she had made a pact with the devil. The nuns claimed her skin would burn when they poured holy water on it, that religious items would make her convulse, that she suddenly seemed to have the strength of an adult and could apparently speak various foreign languages that she had never learned before. Father Horner and Reverend Munswiti were granted permission to conduct an exorcism, which lasted two full days. They said that Saleh had attempted to strangle one of the priests and knocked a Bible out of his hand, as well as bit one of the women trying to help her. After two days, the demon finally left Sally's body and caused her to levitate. According to accounts, 170 people were present to witness her possession and her exorcism. Our next story is that of Dr. Richard Gallagher and Julia. If you thought all exorcisms were a thing of the past, think again. In 2008, board-certified psychiatrist and teacher at Columbia University and New York Medical College, Dr. Richard Gallagher, declared that his patient, Julia, was possessed. She was the self-proclaimed high priestess of a satanic, satanic cult, dressing in flowing black robes and black eyeshadow that went back to her temple. After feeling as if she was being attacked by a demon, Julia reached out to the local priest who reached out to Dr. Gallagher to put her through psychiatric treatment. However, Dr. Gallagher ruled out mental illness after seeing Julia speak in tongues, sharing details about his life that she would not have known, entering trance-like states, and making items flying off the shelves in his office. When he met Julia, she immediately began to point out the secret weaknesses of everybody in the room. She also knew that his mother had passed away from ovarian cancer. Julia went through eight exorcisms, during which she spewed threats, levitated, exhibited super strength, 
and changed the temperature of the room. She taunted Dr. Gallagher's team of priests and nurses in voices that didn't belong to her and began to make guttural, animalistic noises. According to Dr. Gallagher, he and his team of exorcists weren't able to fully help Julia because she called off the exorcism, saying that she enjoyed the power she received when she was channeled the demonic entity possessing her body. After calling off the exorcism, he said he only heard from Julia one more time and that she was dying of cancer. Our next story is the case of Michael Taylor. In 1974, Christian Taylor, wife of Michael Taylor, accused him of adultery with their church group leader after he became increasingly erratic and socially distant. After the confrontation, Taylor physically attacked his wife. His terrifying behavior increased in frequency and intensity, so it was decided that he needed to be seen by priests and have an exorcism. In October of 1972, two ministers performed an exorcism on Taylor. It was a full night of exhaustive exorcism sessions during which he had seizures, spit at and bit the exorcist, and screamed in tongues. Following the sessions, the priest claimed they had pulled about 40 demons from Taylor, but that several still remained inside of him when he went home. Upon his return, he brutally and violently murdered his wife, tearing her eyes out with his bare hands and strangling the family poodle to death. He was picked up by the police after wandering the neighborhood streets, soaked in his wife's blood. He was not convicted, though, because of the defense's argument that the exorcism made him insane. Our next story is The Exorcism of Anna Eklund. In 2016, the movie The Exorcism of Anna Eklund, based on a true story from the 1900s, was released. At the age of 14, Eklund started to display strange behaviors and would fall ill any time she attended church, as well as vomiting after taking communion. She could also suddenly speak and understand Latin, Hebrew, Hebrew, Italian, and Polish languages. Eklund's family sought help from their local church, where they met Father Reisinger, an expert in exorcisms. Father Reisinger noticed how Eklund reacted violently to holy water, prayer, and religious items. To confirm the possession, Father Reisinger sprayed her with fake holy water in which she did not react. In 1912, when Eklund was 30 years old, Father Reisinger performed an exorcism on her. She returned to her normal self and was said to be free of demonic possessions. However, over the next few years, she claimed that she was being tormented by her dead father and her aunt's spirit. In 1928, she sought the help of Father Reisinger again. He recruited Father Joseph Steiger to help perform the exorcism at his parish in Iowa, which was secret and very secluded. During the exorcism, Eklund dislodged herself from the bed, floated in the air, and landed above the room's door as she howled loudly. She also defecated and vomited very violently, screamed, hissed, and her skin burned and sizzled when holy water touched it. It was also reported that her face twisted, her eyes and lips swelled, and her stomach became hard. During the exorcism, the demons in Eklund threatened Steiger, and he crashed his car into the railing of a bridge the very next day. The third and last session of her exorcism was when the demons freed her. 
Eklund recalled having visions of brutal battles between spirits during the exorcisms. After the three sessions, she was extremely weak and malnourished. She went on to live a quiet life and died in 1941. Our next story is The Exorcism of Arne Johnson. Like Annalise Michael and Roland Doe, Arne was a typical teenager with no signs of mental illness or criminal history when things took a turn. On February 16, 1981, the 19-year-old resident of Brookfield, Connecticut, stabbed his landlord, Alan Bono, to death and claimed that the devil made him do it. Police arrived at the scene to find Bono stabbed in the stomach and chest with a 5-inch pocket knife and arrested Johnson within the hour. Their report stated that the two men had been fighting over Arne Johnson's fiance, Debbie Glatzel. However, the infamous paranormal investigators, who we all know, Ed and Lorraine Warren, claimed otherwise. The Warrens had been hired by Debbie Clatzel's family months earlier when the night terrors of Debbie's younger brother David evolved into something more disturbing. David had described seeing an old man with a white beard during the day and a man with big black eyes, a thin face, with animal features and jagged teeth at night. He had begun kicking, biting, spitting, and cursing at his parents. David appeared to be getting strangled by an unseen presence and experienced seizures. While psychiatrists diagnosed him with a learning disability, the Warrens concluded he had been possessed by a demon, whom Johnson began frequently taunting. Then, priests conducted three real-life exorcisms that reportedly led David to levitate and predict that Johnson would murder Bono. Johnson had screamed at the demonic voice to possess him instead and leave the child alone. According to his defense lawyer, the demon did just that. It was the first time not guilty by reason of demonic possession was used in a courtroom, though the judge rejected it as a plea. Skeptics felt that the Warrens were hucksters as proof of any priests involved in the exorcisms never surfaced, although the Diocese of Bridgeport did confirm they'd been ordered to keep quiet. Debbie's other brother, Carl, joined the chorus of Warren skeptics and claimed they took advantage of David's mental health issues. Meanwhile, Debbie remains convinced. She said the devil accepted Johnson's challenge and led him to kill. In the end, Arne Cheyenne Johnson served five years of his 20-year sentence, and he and Debbie are now married. In 2021, the saga was made into the eighth installment of The Conjuring franchise, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. Alrighty, so our next story is Juanita Gomez's Crucifix Murder. Geneva Gomez was 33 years old when her mother, Juanita Martinez Gomez, stabbed her to death in August of 2016 in an especially gruesome murder. Juanita claimed that she needed to perform a real-life exorcist on Geneva, and in doing so, she used a crucifix to stab her daughter until her face was no longer recognizable, and then shoved it down her throat. On August 27, 2016, Geneva's boyfriend, Francisco, arrived at her mother's house in Oklahoma City. 
There, Geneva was lying, beaten and bloodied, on the floor, with her arms spread out in the shape of the cross. On top of her chest was a large wooden crucifix. He later told police that Juanita was standing in the room, rambling about the devil. Juanita was placed under arrest and charged with first-degree murder. Murder. In court, she claimed that she had killed Geneva because she was possessed by the devil and she needed to perform an exorcism. She also stated that her daughter had been rambling in tongues and spoke in a demonic voice, not her own. She pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. A psychological evaluation concluded that Juanita Gomez was grossly feigning memory problems to appear incompetent, and the judge rejected the insanity plea. Meanwhile, the medical examiner who analyzed Geneva's body uncovered a litany of gruesome injuries to the head and face and established the cause of death as being blunt force trauma. When questioned about bruises on her own hands, Juanita Gomez told police that these resulted from fighting Geneva to rid Satan from her daughter's body. With witness testimony from the boyfriend and Juanita Gomez's own confession, a jury convicted the 50-year-old mother and sentenced her to life without parole. Our next story is The Real Exorcism of Amy Sematis. In November of 2006, Amy jumped out of her second-story window in Searcy, Arkansas. Paralyzed below the waist and recovering in the hospital, she was visited by Pentecostal evangelist Cindy Lawson. Lawson, who claimed to have performed 10 real-life exorcisms before, told her that she knew demons possess stomatis. The Lord spoke to me and told me to go to the hospital to cast the demons out of her, said Lawson. I could feel something churning. Somatis' trouble began after a shift at Baptist Health Medical Center in Little Rock. The 49-year-old nurse had just finished writing a report and inexplicably forgot how to do her job. Her skills were gone entirely, leading her to quit. A lifelong runner, she was suddenly unable to do even that. Psychiatrists prescribed antidepressants. Somatis' state worsened over time, randomly taking her clothes off in public, screaming at her friends, and once climbing a seven-story parking ramp to jump from. While the police managed to talk her down, she ultimately tried again in November from her own home and succeeded. Paralyzed and with voices still haunting her, she put her trust in Lawson. Somatis had suffered through hearing voices, whisper sub- suggestions to kill herself, for seven months before she jumped out of the window and was an- unable to find help anywhere she turned. Ultimately, she agreed to let Lawson perform an exorcism. In the medical war- world, they need to put a name to it, said Stomatis. They don't understand because they have never dealt with these types of demons. So how are they going to fight against something that you don't know how to fight, that you don't even understand? Lawson performed her first real-life exorcism on a nine-year-old boy and said that he levitated during this ritual. She claimed to have seen subjects change their eye color mid-exorcism, foam at the mouth, or speak in guttural demonic voices. She said her vocation was initially terrifying, but that God had called her to it. While Stomatis doesn't remember her real-life exorcism, the family members who attended all agreed that there had been an instantaneous change when it finished. 
While the former nurse remained paralyzed, her exorcist is convinced that God will eventually even heal her of that too. Alright guys, so thanks for hanging out again today. I hope you enjoyed this. Don't forget to check back in for our next episode. It's going to be the true crime one and then we're getting back to Creepy Corner. Um, if you enjoyed this and if you want to hear more content, don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and like wherever you're listening to this podcast. Follow us on all the social media and tell your friends about us. You tell two people, those two people tell two people, and we just keep on growing. It is much appreciated and it helps us out a lot and is a free way to support us. Um, if you have any suggestions or want any of your stories read on the podcast, send them to our email at darkcrossroadspodcasts at gmail.com. And with that said, I hope you guys have a wonderful day or night, whatever time you're listening to this. And don't forget to be weird, stay different, and don't trust anyone. Dark Crossroads Podcast is brought to you by Problem Wildlife. Problem Wildlife serves Western Massachusetts and has been humanely protecting your house and family from unwanted pests for over 20 years. Take back your space with an animal control service that you can trust. They are family-owned, fully licensed, and are knowledgeable and dependable. To find out more about their services, simply visit their website at www.problemwildliferemoval.com. Again, that's www.problemwildliferemoval.com. And the website will also be included in our show notes.